And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. From the book of Exodus, we're going to be following the life of Moses. It's a true story. It's a narrative. It's an account of what happened. And it's a great story. There's so many things that we can learn as we slowly work through this book together. Led by fire. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're like, that is a strange title. Well, the Israelites, God's people, were led by a pillar of fire during the day or at night and a cloud by the day. And it was great. And Moses has another encounter in a burning bush where God speaks to him and he's led by fire. And I just thought that, you know, that's a cool title. So that's, that's the reason behind it. But I don't know about you. I know there's times where in my life where I don't know what to do next. I don't know what you want from me, God. I don't know what the next step is. I have a general idea. I don't know what the exact thing is. The good news is that God wants to lead you. He wants to lead you. And in this series, as we look at Moses' life and the Israelite story, we see that God took somebody in a difficult place, led led them to freedom, and rescued a nation and impacted generations. I believe that same God wants to lead and direct us. Maybe you feel stuck. We, we find how he gets them unstuck. We get to know God better in this book. And so today is a little bit of an introductory message that we kind of set up the story of Exodus that we'll be going through. There's some major themes in it. The, I, the book is named after uh, the leaving of Egypt, the way out, deliverance and redemption is a theme, sacrifice is a theme. We learn a little bit about ethics later in the book. And my favorite part is that we just get to see more of who God is. God reveals his name in the book of Exodus. And there's so much behind a name. He, he reveals his character and not in the way that we're often taught where he's omniscient and omnipotent and all these omni words we learn in church that means all powerful, all knowing, but we learn that he's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. You know, A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That how we view God changes the way we live. He goes on, and this is in his book, The Knowledge of Holy. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. That there's something that draws us to who we see God as. We slowly become like that. So understanding who he is and the way he reveals himself in Exodus is really important. All right, quick overview of the book. The first few chapters are the beginning of Moses' story. He's born, he's rescued, you've seen the prince of Egypt, you, you know what's going on. Maybe you haven't. You've, you're, you're familiar with the story of Moses. It's a, it's a famous one. And then the plagues come. And there's all of these crazy things happening and frogs and locusts and, and all sorts of things. After that, they're in the wilderness. They're stuck in the wilderness and they don't know what's going on and they're having a hard time obeying God. And then the, the book makes a turn and they receive the Ten Commandments, the law, the instruction, and they instantly break it. They're quick to be like, we're, we're actually worshiping an idol in the middle of all this. And through all of that, we see a better picture of who God is, a better picture of who we are and how God loves us. Um, and, and to set the stage, Exodus is part of a larger book. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And so if you were to think about it, this is kind of chapter two in a long story that sets up the narrative of God's redemptive work in human history. To give a little bit of a reference, maybe you've watched Star Wars. You know, Star Wars, most of us know Star Wars. That's every generation. They come out with a new one every few years. And so we know that Star Wars starts with the scroll, right? The title, like, it's like, 
and like the music's going off and the yellow words are on the screen and it lets you know what's going on. Exodus starts the same way. In the very beginning of the chapter, it's like, hey, I don't know if you remember, the book of Genesis was all about Joseph and the coat of many colors and they moved to Egypt and, and God used that to, to save his people and now, now his whole family moved there. And so they catch you up. It's the scrolling screen. Hey, there's 70 of them now. And then it begins the list. They got Reuben and blah, 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 blah. They keep listing all the people. And it's really important. And I wish we had time to talk about it, but we don't. So I'm going to skip ahead to verse 7. Exodus 1 verse 7 says, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So this begins to start to set up what is happening. We're beginning to see the story unfold we, we realize that the Israelites have moved and they're, they're growing. They're rapidly expanding. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, this might sound a little bit about like the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Do you see the similarities? I actually have a little picture that shows us some of the similarities between these verses. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the land. That's God's command to the people. And then in Exodus 1-7, it says, the children of Israel were fruitful. It's the same Hebrew word. And they swarmed and they increased. The same word is multiply. Increase and multiply was the same Hebrew word. And they filled the land. If you notice, the difference is they didn't subdue it. They were subdued. They were the ones who were supposed to be ruling and reigning, but they themselves were being ruled and reigned that they, they were in captivity to the Egyptians. And, and Pharaoh was at first favorable towards them. He's like, Joseph, bring your whole family in. We're going to take care of you. And slowly Joseph's family dies off and generations pass. And they've expanded and grown. They've been fruitful and multiplied. But now there's a new Pharaoh. And he's not super happy about it. He's actually a little concerned. This is verse 9. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He's like, I could care less who Joseph was. I could care less who your family is. It doesn't matter to me. We have a problem. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come. They've become far too numerous. We must deal with them shrewdly or they will become even more numerous. And if a war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. He's like, this, this immigrant group who's joined our nation has become an asset they're blessing us. They're, they're great. They're multiplying. But I'm a little worried that they're going to take over. He's like, if we go to war, they're going to join the other people and they're going to they're gonna do stuff. And Pharaoh's worried about it. And so his first plan, his plan A to get rid of the Israelites, God's chosen people, Joseph's family, the descendants of Abraham, he's like, harsh labor. Let's enslave them. Let's make them work harder to build these storage cities. Um, what happens? They just multiply more. He makes them work harder, they multiply. It, it gave me the image of like when you try to push, a, push a, a ball underwater and it pops back out. He's like, we're going we're gonna to oppress these people. I'm going to make them work harder. And then the ball just pops out and they multiply more. He's like, that didn't work. Plan B, I need a new plan. Murderous midwives. That's my new plan. Murderous midwives. He's like, all the midwives, when you give birth to Hebrew babies, the Israelite babies, if it is a boy deal with it. He, he's commanding genocide. But what happens is they don't do it. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God. 
and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. I love this. It goes on to explain how they get out of it too because he comes to them and he's like, hey guys, why, why are they living? It's not working. You're not doing what I said. And they're like, you know, the women are just so strong. They have babies before we get there. They lie about it. They're like, you know, it's, it's out of our control. The baby's just, I missed it. Happened every, again. And what's cool is it, it references that they feared God. They didn't do what the king said. They feared God. That there's a moment where we have to decide, who is my ultimate allegiance to? Who, who do I fear the most? And not a, not a fear that just says, hey, I, I'm terrified for my life, but a fear that, that's that awe and that respect and that reverence. And they're like, hey, no, I, I care more about what God thinks than, than what the king is telling me. And this isn't going to be my response. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Well, Pharaoh, that's not enough for him. I mean, Pharaoh at this point is, is the worst character in the Bible. I mean, we have Satan, but Pharaoh's right behind him. He's basically the incarnation of Satan. He is basically evil personified. And we, we go and see that play out even more. And so he goes to plan C. Plan A, enslave him. Didn't work. Plan B, murderous miswives. Didn't work. Plan C is, is just the, the big command. Drowned all the male babies in the Nile River. He's like, I have to ask everybody to do this on their own now. I can't trust the midwives to do it for me. Well, that's basically the summary of chapter one of Exodus. And then chapter two opens with this new scene where it talks about a Levite woman getting married and it's Moses's parents. They get married and they give birth to a son and it's Moses. She looks at him and says that he's a fine baby. That's what all the moms say, right? I have, this baby is the most beautiful baby that has ever been born. What's cool is in Hebrew, she literally says that he's good. It reminds us of creation when God would make something and say, it's good. She sees Moses and says he's good, and that's actually referenced in the New Testament. Acts talks about it, how he was an extraordinary child, and God had a plan for him. Well, she keeps him a secret as long as she can. She's like, you know, the, the command is out. I, I can't. Once he gets a little bigger, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about it. But for as long as I can, I'm going to shelter him and protect him. And so she spends an unknown amount of time with Moses. And then we know the story, right? She, she makes a basket and puts tar and pitch on it. What's cool is the basket, it's the same word as the ark. It's the same idea of God rescuing and providing and, and making a way to avoid destruction it's the same Hebrew word. And so she puts him in the basket and puts him in the Nile River, which is technically kind of what Pharaoh said, right? He said, put all the babies in the river. It's not what he meant, but it was like half obedience. She found a way, a loophole, and she puts Moses in the river. And Moses' sister goes to the edge of the grass and she's watching as Moses goes down the river. And we know Pharaoh's daughter picks him up opens the basket, says, this must be one of the Hebrew boys. And she picks him up and his sister, who we assume is Miriam, we assume it's the same sister we see a little later in the story, goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and is like, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women to, to nurse him and take care of him? And she's like, yeah, yeah. Actually, go find one of them and I'll pay you to have that done. So Miriam just goes, brings Moses back to his mom, her mom. And she's like, hey, 
you can keep Moses a little longer, we can keep him a little longer, and we're going to get paid to do it. That's not too bad. Be like, go sister. So she does that, and what's cool is it's not the amount of time that we would think of a mom nursing a baby. Most scholars say this could have lasted up to five years. Um, they, they say two to five years, but most of them agree that it's probably closer to four or five, which is a long time. I mean, that's past just the care that's into formation. Our daughter's almost five, and she's, she's way past that. She's full sentences, walking around, all this stuff. She's doing things on her own, but she's beginning to pick up the ideas and the beliefs and the things that we care about. Our values are being passed on. And so I, I can't help but think that's true of Moses, that he had a little bit of a foundation laid from the beginning. Well, that time ends, and he goes to Pharaoh's court, and we're going to kind of pick up the story there next week, and I can't wait to work our way through Exodus, but there's a few principles I want to pull, a few themes that will stay part of the story and just unpack for us. And the first is that God offers salvation. God offers salvation. I heard a little amen. That was good. Maybe it's so obvious that you're like, I don't even need to say amen. We already know that. But I want us to think on it for a little bit. Salvation to define it more broadly than you sometimes think about it, is a rescue from slavery of serving anything other than God. It's deliverance from anything that's taken place of the place that God should have in your life. And God wants to rescue from the slavery of your other masters, the other things that hold you captive. The New Testament talks about how where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. That you can have freedom from those things. God wants you to find freedom from your habits and your patterns and your hurt and your past. He wants you to walk in freedom. He wants you to invite others into that freedom. Jesus came to set the captive free. To loose the chains of injustice. To bring us from darkness into light. I want us to see that freedom. I want us to experience that freedom. I want us to live in it. To not just intellectually know about it. I want us to, to have that for ourselves that we've been saved, salvation, that we're free from slavery of any other master, that our only master is God. See, they were, they were multiplying rapidly. In verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor. This was, this was his plan A that we talked about. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Do you see how repetitive that is? It's like harsh labor, work, harsh labor, work. In fact, in Hebrew, it's the same word four times in a row, which is so repetitive, which is why none of the English translations are like, we're going to, because it doesn't read well. It, read, it would read more like this. They made their lives bitter with serving, with brick and murder, mortar, with every kind of serving. With every kind of serving, they made them serve. That's why, that's why no translator does that, because it doesn't translate well. But there's an idea here that what they were, they were caught in was serving, was enslavement. It was repetitive on purpose. And we think of it in a Western idea where when we find freedom, it's total autonomy. That I have no, no one that I'm enslaved to, no thing to answer to. Freedom means I'm the one in charge. Biblically speaking, that's not how it works. We understand from the story of Exodus and again in the New Testament that we're always enslaved to something. It's just 
who or what is our master. Even when Moses comes and we know he says, let my people go, right? We, we say that, we watch it in the movies. It's actually more than that. Every time he adds something to it, let my people go that they may serve me, is what God tells him to go say. He says, tell them when you go to Pharaoh this time, he says, let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may hold a feast in my honor in the wilderness. He's always calling them not just to freedom, but to a new master, to a new place and posture that something else is ruling and reigning in their life. The heart of God is that they would be free from serving in Egypt and free to serve him. And that that sometimes changes the way we think about freedom. This is an idea that Paul picks up on. He's an apostle in the New Testament. He wrote some of the letters in the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 6, he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have a new allegiance. And he says this in verse 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Your freedom leads you to a new master. But in that master is all the freedom our heart is looking for. It's an alignment to the way we are created. And that's why how we think about God is so important. Because if we think he's an, a mean or hard master, we just think we go from one Egypt to another. But when we understand who the Bible teaches him to be and who he reveals himself as in Exodus, that he's abounding in love and gracious and slow to anger, we, we leave these other masters for the only master that can satisfy our soul. Anything you have that you go to to feel good in life or about yourself, you become a servant to. Anything in your life that you go to to find pleasure and what you think is freedom you become a servant to. The question is, how intentional are we being about it? Our exodus is leaving those things and and turning to God. Our freedom is found in our surrender to Christ. Our redemption is putting Yahweh, the one true God, as the primary person in our heart. To make this practical, if you want stability, that firm foundation we sang about, if you want freedom from fear, if you want that release from anxiety and worry, if you want a foundation that won't be shaken, you need to build on God alone. You'll be disappointed by your other masters, the things you enslave yourself to. They, they sound fun in the moment or they're appealing at different times, but when crisis strikes, you realize they don't offer what you thought they did. That's why over and over again, we see when crisis occurs, people run back to church because their foundation was shaken. But for those of us who are truly building our life upon the rock, we have a firm foundation that isn't easily shaken. So God offers salvation. He offers to rescue us from our own masters, from the things that enslave us. And the second thing I want to point out is that God is working behind the scenes. God is working behind the scenes. In these first two chapters of Exodus, God is barely referenced. The first time we see him referenced is when it says that the midwives feared the Lord. They feared God. Other than that, he's kind of just behind the scenes. You're left wondering, is he, is he doing anything? We learn these names if we've been around church for a long time, like Jehovah Rafi or Jehovah Nisi or all of these different things. I like to think of God as Jehovah Sneaky. <laughs> he's doing things we don't see him doing. 
He's working behind the scenes and changing us and working for our good, even when we can't see it. I like that song we sing sometimes that says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. See, everything Pharaoh does to oppose God's people, the Israelites, not only ends up getting stopped, but actually ends up working against Pharaoh in the end. God turns everything one, every one of those things around to lead to their redemption and salvation. Pharaoh tries to kill the infants. That's the only reason that Moses ends up in the palace. That's where he's going to get military training. That's where he's going to get leadership training. That's where he's going to get an inside perspective and all of these different parts. I mean, Moses ends up becoming the ideal liberator, rescuer of Israel because of what seems like a horrible thing and what is a horrible thing. And what happens is sometimes we swing one way or the other and we say, well, God caused those horrible things so he could do that. And then we think God's bad. Or otherwise, we swing to the other side and we're like, all these bad things are happening and God's not doing anything. He must not be good. But neither one of those is true. See, God isn't the only one working. There's also an enemy of our souls. There's also Satan. There's, there's also our own free will. What's beautiful is the sovereignty of God is bigger than all of that. That he can see my decisions and your decisions and the enemy at work and still be working that to accomplish his purpose. That he can be working through pain and problems and suffering and, and creating an ultimate good. And sometimes that's really hard to see. It's easy to see when years are condensed into chapters. When we see Moses rescuing these people and, wow, God, you weaved all these things and the fact that they did that and, and Pharaoh's daughter was there and, and then what happens in the wilderness and Zipporah being his wife and all these things, God, you just worked it all out. But I, I bet it didn't feel like that in the moment. In fact, I know it didn't feel like that. The Israelites had many questions. Where is God? What is he doing? And I know sometimes we feel like that. God, where are you? Are you absent? Are you here? Can I trust you? Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's a promise. God said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never turn my back on you. The word forsake reminds us of Jesus on the cross when he's yelling, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus even felt it like we all feel it. He felt the absence of God. But he was the only one who was forsaken for us so that we never had to be. And God promises because of him, we will never experience that. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting something from the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy. It says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord, your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. You must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. It's repeated twice there. Moses tells him twice. I think the most important stuff is always repeated twice, you know? Because Moses knows, Joshua, you need to hear this more than once. God will not leave you. He will not forsake you. 
Don't be afraid. You're going to want to feel afraid. You're going to feel like God did leave you. You're going to want to feel discouraged. He's like, but God will not leave you. You may see the devil's handiwork in your life. You may see the depravity of humanity in your life. You may see the consequences of decisions in your life. You may see all of this and have a hard time seeing God. But let me encourage you. Let me remind you. He is still with you. He has not forsaken you. He is not absent. He's not even distant. He's working. You just can't see it yet. You don't have the bigger picture yet. You don't have the zoomed out view like we do of the beginning of Exodus where we're like, God, you're working this whole thing. You're setting up the whole redemptive arc of human history in this moment. And in this moment, it's very, very dark. The enemy's using Pharaoh for genocide, but God, we see you working in the middle of it. Not that you're causing it, but that you're going to bring something good out of it. And I don't know what you're walking through in your life right now, but God has not left you. He's not forsaken you. He sees you. He promises to work all things together for good. Not that all things will be good. He actually promises the opposite. He said, in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So God offers salvation. He offers to rescue us and free us from masters. He also is working behind the scenes. And finally, God uses the weak, the powerless, and the unexpected. He uses the underdog, the marginalized, the oppressed, the ones that other people count out. This is back to chapter 1. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. That's really her name, Pua. If you're pregnant and considering girl names, keep considering. (laughs) I wouldn't choose that one. Her name was Shipra and Pua. But what's interesting is there's not very many names mentioned in chapters 1 and 2. And that's intentional. That's not by accident. The writer's not forgetting everybody's names. In fact, Moses is the one who wrote this. He, he knows exactly who all of these people are. And it's intentional that he mentions them. Verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Over and over, every commentary I opened said, did you notice? Did you see it? Both of the midwives were named, and they don't tell us which Pharaoh it is. They don't tell us which king of Egypt it is. You know, there was Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh. They leave that out. Other people are left unnamed in the chapter. But these midwives get their names written down. Notice, they're mentioned by name. It's not an accident. They would have been the low end of the social class. Women were already viewed less than at that time. And then on top of that, if you were a midwife, it was often because you were unable to have kids, which meant people would make assumptions about you, like maybe you're cursed or maybe whatever, and you were just even lower on the totem pole, yet God used them to rescue countless Hebrew babies. They get noticed. Their name gets written down. Pharaoh's daughter becomes a key player. If you notice, all of these women keep showing up in the first two chapters. As I was reading, it kept popping out to me. It's like, wow, there's another woman. And then I was reading the commentaries, and they're like, did you notice all of the women in the first two chapters rescuing and making a difference, all of them doing their own part? Moses' mom, Moses' sister, the daughter of Pharaoh, the maidservants of Pharaoh, his wife in chapter 2, Shipra and Pua, the midwives, delivering the deliverer. 
saving Moses. Each woman worked within her sphere of influence to resist injustice. None of them went so far and tried to take it all on their own. They did what they could in their sphere of influence. And God used all of them, fearing the Lord together, to accomplish his purposes. They refused to act in alignment with Pharaoh and act in alignment with Yahweh. We're to do the same. We're to trust God that, God, you can use even me. The person maybe not expected, the person who's not perfect, the person who maybe has been looked and passed over by other people. God, you use the weak, the powerless, the unexpected to accomplish your purposes. It's a theme throughout Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, we're seeing all of these people. Even Moses, when he's finally called by God, he's like, God, I can't do it. I, I have this speech thing, and I can't do it. Over and over, God uses the unexpected person. And I think we could leave encouraged with these three points that God is a God of salvation. He offers us freedom. That not only does he offer us freedom, but we can remember and be encouraged that he's working behind the scenes even when we don't see him. Or we can be encouraged that he uses the weak and the powerless and the unexpected. But I think we'd miss it if we stopped there. Because Moses points to somebody else. Moses points to Jesus before we even meet Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, if you, if you play back the story and hit the highlights, you, you actually begin to hear echoes of another story that's to come. There's a king who sends out a decree to kill infant boys. There's a child that is born that's going to deliver and rescue people. There's a time of sanctification in the wilderness. We see these themes that parallel the birth of Jesus in the life of Moses. In Luke 9, in the transfiguration, when Jesus is having this holy moment that's crazy and Elijah and Moses are up there with him and the disciples are watching and they're like, what's going on up there? We see all these things that, that there's this idea that Moses is, is a shadow of what's to come. That he's an image of Jesus who would rescue us not from just social and physical oppression, but from spiritual oppression and set us free so that we can freely Follow God. Moses did it at the risk of his life. Jesus did it at the sake of his life, the cost of his life. Jesus is the one who can save us, that he can redeem us and set us free from our slavery to sin. We see God working behind the scenes even on the cross. Jesus feels abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what's going on. He's Jesus. He's fully aware. He, he knows what he's been called to. He's been alluding to his death and resurrection. But even in that moment, what seems like everybody, to everybody else watching, we didn't, this was unsuccessful. God, how are you going to use this? He was our rescue plan. We've all been following him. We don't know what to do. We're going to go hide in different rooms. Some of us are going to go back to fishing. We're all, we don't know what to do. But even when, they couldn't see it. God was working. Jesus, on the third day, rose from the dead, conquering death and sin and offering life to all of us. It reminds us that God doesn't save me because of what I've done. He saves me in spite of what I've done and because of what Jesus has done. That we have the opportunity to be saved just like he saved his people from Egypt. That our Egypt is anything that enslaves us and takes the place of our master. 
that we can trust that he's working even when things don't make sense around us and that we can trust that he'll use us, the unexpected, the overlooked. I think as we go deeper into this study, those themes will continue to show up and we'll have a better understanding of who God is. And as we see God for who he is, we're slowly drawn more and more into his likeness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're our deliverer. We thank you for reminding us this morning. We're aware of it. We've been told it. We understand it. But God, would you once again bring us to a place of worship, bring us to a place of surrender, where you alone sit on the throne of our heart. God, we're thankful that you're working when we can't see you. I pray for encouragement for people who feel abandoned. God, would you remind them of your nearness? Would you be near to the brokenhearted? Would your spirit give them peace that surpasses understanding? Joy that doesn't make sense based on their circumstances. God, would you help all of us to be willing and available to be used by you? The unexpected We ask that you would continue to solidify these truths in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you're here and you've never actually made the decision to be rescued. What's beautiful is it's a free gift. It's it's an offer that Jesus makes all of us. He's like, hey, I've paid for your freedom. All you have to do is receive it. You just have to step into it. The first step of freedom from bondage is just acknowledging what he's done in your life. And Romans 10 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Lord is the idea of him being the ruler of your life. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, rescued, delivered. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. That means made right with God. And it is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. If you're here and you've never made that decision and you feel God moving right now, the Spirit drawing you in, I'd love for you to make that decision today, to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. In a moment, you begin to experience that freedom Not all of it at once sometimes. It's an ongoing process of being delivered from Egypt and learning how to walk the life that God has called you to. But all at once forgiven from the penalty of it. All at once adopted into God's family. All at once invited into God's presence eternally once you end this race, this life. So if that's you this morning, you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, I'd love for you just to let me know by simply raising your hand doesn't have to be big. You don't have to wave it around, but just enough for me to see it. And then I'd love to pray with you and have you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. If that's you, could you just do that right now? Is there anybody? Praise God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the ruler of the universe, that you love us so much that you sent your one and only son to die for our sin. God, we pray now, the person who raised their hand, I pray with them, God, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you make me brand new? God, would I find freedom from the things that have held me in captivity? And would I freely worship you? Would you give me new life? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com. We hope you have a great week.